everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Carl Coppolino, an esteemed doctor and writer who became embroiled in two high-profile scandals in the 1960s. Speculation still swirls about whether he was actually guilty for both crimes or completely innocent. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to the National Library of Medicine, back in the day, curare, as well as chloroform, were the original anesthetics, and they were used to lessen muscle contraction without inhibiting brain function. Curare originated in South America, where they would apply it to the tips of arrows to make them poison for hunting. Low doses were fine and easy to come back from, but once doses were too high, you were dead. Unfortunately, it was difficult to find the line between a relaxed body and a dead one. Nowadays, curare is being used to reduce shivering and to diagnose muscle diseases. Both now and back in the 1960s, Middletown was an affluent, sparse suburban town in Monmouth County. It currently has a population of around 67,000 people. It's considered a family town with good schools and well-educated residents, and crime is fairly unknown around there. Fun fact, Middletown was one of the first settlements in New Jersey history. Not much is known about Carl Coppolino's early life, but in 1954, he graduated from Fordham University in the Bronx and then from SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn four years later. In 1963, he's 30 years old and living with his wife and two daughters in the Fox Run neighborhood in Middletown, a very exclusive area. Carl was an anesthesiologist and an author, and he worked at Riverview Hospital in nearby Red Bank. He wrote several books on anesthesiology and articles for medical journals. One of his books was called The Practice of Hypnosis and Anesthesiology. Carl's wife, Carmela, was also a doctor, and she worked as a medical researcher for a drug company in Jersey. Due to a heart condition, Carl was deemed unfit for work as a doctor. By age 30, he had already experienced multiple heart attacks. He had to stop working, but regardless, he was still highly respected and regarded as an expert on anesthesiology. The Coppolino's income did seriously decrease, but they still had Carl's royalties from his books, his disability checks, and his wife's handsome salary, so they were by no means struggling. Unfortunately, staying at home gave Carl some free time, which he put to poor use. Being a young, attractive, and intelligent doctor allowed Carl to have a lot of options for romantic partners, even though he was still married. He began an affair with their neighbor who was 18 years his senior. She was a housewife named Marjorie Farber. Marjorie's husband, William Farber, who was an army colonel, knew about the affair. Even though he had tolerated it for some time, eventually he had enough of it. On July 30th, 1963, Marjorie called the Coppolinos terrified. She told them that her husband was unconscious in the bedroom and asked if Carl could come over. Obviously, she would have preferred him out of the two doctors, but if he came over while on disability, he would be in danger of losing his benefits, so Carmela came over instead. Sadly, William Farber was dead. There was no apparent distress to the body like blunt force trauma to the head or anything like that, so Carmela didn't suspect that Marjorie had beaten him to death or something. Carl called and pressured Carmela into signing the death certificate right there, declaring the cause of death as coronary thrombosis. It's interesting that he not only wanted such a say in William's cause of death, but also had a cause of death in mind from afar without ever having seen the body. Over time, Carl began to lose interest in Marjorie. They continued their affair for an additional 18 months after William had passed, which is, you know, kind of messed up. But as we all know, everyone grieves differently. Then, in April of 1965, the Coppolinos moved to Longbow Key, Florida, which angered Marjorie. Now that they moved states, Carmela had to get her Florida medical license, but sadly, she failed the exam. I don't know if medical exams back then were something you couldn't retake, they cost too much, or she was just completely disheartened, but either way, Carmela was not able to practice medicine in Florida. 
Carl, ever the doting husband, used this as an opportunity to start an affair with their wealthy neighbor, Mary Gibson. Mary was an older divorcee who quickly caught the attention of the young, bored Carl. He asked Carmela for a divorce so that he could marry the neighbor because he was accustomed to a certain lifestyle that was no longer being provided to him or by him. Carmela said no because she was Catholic and didn't believe in divorce, so our boy Carl hit a dead end. Then, at around 6 a.m. on August 28, 1965, Dr. Julia Carrow, the Coppolino's family physician, woke up to a frantic phone call from Carl. He told her that he found his wife, Carmela, dead, presumably from a heart attack. Now you're probably wondering, although Carl had a heart condition and was quite young to be having heart attacks, Carmela's heart was fine, so why would she have had one? Well, that's exactly what Dr. Carrow was wondering as well, but she came over to the Coppolino's home anyway. Less than two months later, Carl wed Mary Gibson, which definitely raised a few eyebrows. I failed to mention earlier that Marjorie from Jersey, the original fair partner, also moved down to Florida and bought a house nearby to the Coppolinos. She was offended that Carl had seemingly forgotten all about her and moved on to yet another mistress. She, for some reason, poured her heart out to Dr. Carrow. She told the doctor a story that basically alluded to the fact that Carl manipulated her into falling in love with him so that he could kill her husband, specifically smother him to death, and she helped him. Marjorie also alleged that Carl killed Carmela, and she knows because she helped him kill her own husband. After spilling all of these allegations to Dr. Carrow, Marjorie reported it all to the police. This admission actually led to both William Farber's body in New Jersey and Carmela Coppolino's body in Florida to be exhumed. Here comes another two-state crime story, y'all. The medical examiner, Dr. Milton Helpern, found, pardon me for this terrible pronunciation, but succinylcholine chloride, which was an artificial version of a medicine used by older anesthesiologists that we talked about in the terrifying tidbit, in both the bodies. Farber's cricoid, which is the cartilage in the larynx, was fractured, which could mean that he was strangled or smothered. In terms of Carmela, there was a needle puncture wound in her left buttock that looked to be the injection site of the paralytic. Her heart was healthy, so it wasn't otherwise clear what she could have died from. But basically, there was no shot that she died from a heart attack. Police then charged Carl Coppolino for the murders of William and Carmela. The William Farber trial took place first in Freehold, New Jersey. The main witness and impetus to this trial was Marjorie Farber. It was her story that spurred these court cases. In order to convict Carl, her reputation had to be solidified while Carl's had to be vilified. The prosecutor, Vincent Cooper, said that Carl had violated two commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's life. He immediately attempted to appeal to the Christian sensibilities of the jury, which was a smart assumption in 1960s America. The defense attorney, F. Lee Bailey, basically just tried to destroy Marjorie's character and make her story sound crazy. He stated, she wants this man so badly that she would sit on his lap in the electric chair while somebody pulls the switch just to make sure that he dies. This is not a murder case at all. This is monumental and shameful proof that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. This painted a different picture of Marjorie. Was she actually just a jealous, rejected woman who wanted to get revenge on her ex-affair partner? The prosecution gets Marjorie on the witness stand. She said she had been hypnotized by Carl so she could kick her smoking habit and she had been into him ever since. I think she was blaming hypnosis on her cheating on her husband. She felt like she had no will against Carl, and apparently he kept telling her that, quote, that bastard, meaning her husband William, has got to go. According to Marjorie, Carl gave her a poison-filled syringe and explained how to inject William and kill him in his sleep. She injected William with some of the solution, but lost her resolve to go all the way through with it, which is when she allegedly called Carl to help her finish the job. 
First, Carl gave him a sedative, then tried to suffocate him with a plastic bag. Marjorie watched them scuffle with each other for a while as she pleaded for Carl to reconsider his unbending conviction to murder this man. But unfortunately, those pleas fell on deaf ears because allegedly Carl smothered him to death. Now, if you remember, this story greatly contrasts the original version of events we heard earlier. The Coppolinos had a maid named Dorothy Jeffries back in Jersey who testified in the trial. She recalled the events of that day. Carmela left the home around 7.30. Carl left around 10.30. Later on in the day, Carl came back to the house with Marjorie to have a drink for about an hour, and Marjorie left a while before Carmela came home from work around 6 p.m. 30 minutes after Carmela returned, the distressed phone call from Marjorie was made to the Coppolino residence. Carmela picked up the phone and told Dorothy that Mr. Farber had died, causing her to almost choke on her hamburger. Dorothy remembered that Carl was about 25 feet away when the news was delivered and that Carmela left immediately to tend to the situation. She returned about half an hour later and told Carl and Dorothy that William was totally blue on one side of his body and that he had been dead for quite a while. One could argue that Carl and Marjorie killed William during the time period that Carl was out of the house, but the timeline of events Marjorie told still doesn't line up. For one, William would have had to have been asleep in the middle of a workday. Also, Dorothy didn't mention Carl rushing out of the home when he left around 10.30am, which would have been the appropriate response to someone struggling to kill someone that you want dead. He and Marjorie leisurely returned to the house, which would have been an odd reaction to just having successfully murdered one's husband. What time was Marjorie's version of events even supposed to take place that day? Now we move on to the cross-examination of Marjorie Farber. Ethley Bailey, the lawyer for the defense, asserted that Marjorie had just imagined the, the entire thing and no one had been murdered. And she made up the story to exact revenge on Carl who not only left her behind in New Jersey, but continued to ignore her when she showed up in Florida and started up a relationship with another woman. He criticized Marjorie's claim that she was completely powerless in the murder of her husband. Calling the police was always an option. He also kept referring to her age. She was 52, as if that made her more pathetic, bitter, Maybe she sort of had more sense by that age. And as the final blow to her credibility and reputation, Bailey repeatedly reminded the jury that she was cheating while she was married with a married man. He was able to get them to turn against her. During the cross-examination of Milton Helpern, Bailey asked Helpern if William Farber had a terminal heart condition that could have caused the coronary thrombosis, and if the fracturing of the cricoid happened before or after he was killed. Helpern said William did have a heart condition, but that the cricoid fracture happened before he was killed. Bailey retorted that William had no bruising on his neck that would have indicated strangulation. He suggested that the act of exhuming the body was what caused the cricoid to be fractured. Helpern wasn't impressed with this assertion, but there were expert witnesses that backed up this claim. Two doctors who were also medical examiners said that the cricoid fracture happened after William died and that he had an advanced heart condition that was more likely to be his cause of death than strangulation. When Bailey called Carl to the stand, he had no problems answering all the questions. He didn't seem shady, arrogant, sycophantic, but rather self-assured. He spoke and presented well. Because the jury could not be convinced of Carl's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, they declared him not guilty in December of 1966. Uh, but as we know, the story doesn't stop here. People familiar with Carl's previous trial assumed that he would also be acquitted for the murder of his wife because there wasn't any tangible evidence. The state attorney, Frank Schaub, instead just collected a bunch of feasible motives and variations in the defense's story. Schaub claimed the main motive was money. While the Coppolinos were living in New Jersey, Carmela was earning $16,000 a year, so about $154,000 today. He said that because Carl couldn't work and was largely depending upon his wife to pay the bills, and when she couldn't be a doctor where they moved, he killed her. 
Carl was presented as a heartless philanderer who just wanted to marry the rich neighbor woman for her money, but because Carmela didn't want a divorce, he apparently had no choice but to kill her. Three weeks before Carmela's death, Carl upped her life insurance policy from $10,000 to $65,000, which is around $630,000 today. Shobe testified, there's your motive. He also pointed out that because Carl had been a doctor and specifically an anesthesiologist, he knew how to kill people in the method he was accused of. Shobe even tried to prove that Carl's medical condition that prevented him from practicing medicine was not real, but that didn't go anywhere. He did have evidence that Coppolino got the succinylcholine chloride from a friend a month before Carmela died. There was also a witness for the prosecution that stated Carmela's death was incorrectly attributed to a heart attack because Carl had planted the idea that it was a heart attack to the physician, and then basically pressured her into declaring that the cause of death. The Florida jury agreed more with what Milton Halpern had to say than the New Jersey jury. He pretty much gave an identical testimony to the one he gave before. He explained the chemicals found in Carmela's body in layman's terms so that the jury could understand the importance of its presence in her system. But here's some info about succinylcholine chloride. It's actually quite challenging to detect an overdose due to this drug because both succinct, <laughs> succinct acid and choline are naturally in everyone's bodies. For Halpern to prove that this drug was present in Carmela's body, in June of 1966, he enlisted the help of fellow toxicologist Dr. Joseph Umberger to create a new method for finding the chemical because it was otherwise impossible at the time. Apparently, succinylcholine is like instantly broken down into its base compounds. Unfortunately, those two chemicals are pretty much always in dead tissue in very small amounts, so the established methods were not enough to yield the results that they were looking for. To correct this, Dr. Umberger crafted a process that would only detect when succinylcholine chloride was in an oddly high concentration, ignoring the regular quantities that naturally occur in the body. Eventually, he was able to comfortably say that Carmela had an irregularly high amount of succinct acid in her organs, specifically her brain and liver. This was actually a scientific breakthrough in the toxicology field. Who said true crime couldn't be educational? Bailey couldn't disprove these findings. Then, Marjorie Farber had her time on the stand. Shobe, the prosecutor, was barred by a bench ruling from asking Marjorie any questions about her husband's death. She didn't really have much to say for this trial. She claimed to have overheard Carl speaking to someone on the phone after his wife had died, allegedly saying, they have started their arterial work and that won't show anything. This was in reference to the liquid used by embalmers to replace blood. Shobe then called a group of women who regularly played bridge together with Carl and Mary to the stand. A couple of them testified that they were pretty sure Carl and Mary lived together before they got married, which I guess was confirming what we already knew about Carl's indiscretion. For this trial, Carl did not testify and his lawyer was shocked and upset. This would prove to be a big mistake. On April 28, 1967, the verdict was returned. 34-year-old Carl Coppolino was found guilty of second-degree murder in under four hours. Legally, it's kind of odd that it was second-degree murder because that usually indicates the crime wasn't premeditated, but intentionally poisoning someone usually requires some sort of forethought. Either way, Carl was sentenced to life in prison at the Florida State Prison in Rayford. This verdict was a major blow to F. Lee Bailey's self-esteem and reputation. He had gotten Sam Shepard, an Ohio doctor, off for murdering his wife and had gotten Carl acquitted the year prior. The Sam Shepard case is a pretty popular true crime story as well. Bailey apparently had a 19 win streak for homicide cases, but the Boston Strangler in this trial killed that streak. And these were two gigantic cases. In the end, Carl was paroled in 1979 after serving 12 and a half years in prison and lived out the rest of his life. He called his trial in New Jersey the most laughable murder case in the state's history. 
What's crazy about these two cases is that if Carl had never cheated on his wife, he would have never had to deal with any of this mess. Sadly, you know, when some people get status in a comfortable lifestyle, they don't know how to act anymore, and they end up in jail for 12 and a half years. I can't necessarily say I feel bad for Carl because not only was he a blatant repeat cheater, but I'm pretty convinced he killed at least one person and maybe even two, who actually knows. Also, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You guys keep coming back every week and it makes me so happy that I can brighten like 20 minutes of your day. There are people from so many random places like Belgium and the UK who support me, a random girl from New Jersey, but I appreciate every single one of you. Please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast with your spooky friends. I would love it if you follow me on Instagram at GrimTalesGS, and I will see you all next week. Goodbye!